Well, we are starting a Christmas series that we've entitled, Tis the Season. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at several different topics associated with Christmas. We're going to be looking at the significance of the Christmas story next week. The week after, we're going to begin to look at the characters that are involved in this incredible drama. We'll first start with the main characters, and then the week after, we'll turn to the characters that kind of support the the cast. Then we'll look at the implications of Christmas, and finally, we'll talk about the new year that follows. However, this morning, we are going to begin in a very unconventional place. Now, it's hard, and I don't know if you can sympathize with this examination, but it's very difficult to kind of rationalize or understand the weird disconnect that exists between such a humble story that marks the birth of Jesus Christ and what we know of Christmas today, like this commercial juggernaut. You read through the Christmas story, and it is humble, it's sincere, it's genuine. A teenage mom, Joseph, a petrified stepdad, no room in the end, a stable there in the fields, shepherds and wise men bringing gifts. You read through the story, a a star that guides the way, and there's a nostalgia about it, a simplicity about it that really draws you to it. However, you then look at Christmas, which is supposed to be the day that we celebrate this humble story, and we have all kinds of things that have nothing to do with Christmas. It's not as though you look at most nativities and there's behind Jesus in the manger a Christmas tree. It's not as though that one of the wise men was known by the name Santa Claus. It's not as though that the first night Mary and Joseph smooched under some mistletoe. Like all of the things that we kind of now associate with Christmas, we don't find it all in the Christmas story. And if you're like me, I begin to look at Christmas and I look at the original story that's supposed to be the heart of Christmas and there is an incredible disconnect. Now understand something. In America, Christmas has become a cultural phenomenon. 95% of Americans celebrate Christmas. 93% of Americans will participate in Christmas by exchanging gifts. 88% of Americans will put up a Christmas tree in their home this season. 74% of Americans say they will attend at least one Christmas party. And 65% of Americans will sit in on some kind of religious service over Christmas. In America, Christmas has become big business. In 2012, this year alone, America will produce 1.76 billion candy canes. Billion. That's unbelievable. Each year, 20 billion letters, packages, and Christmas cards will be delivered by the United States Postal Service between Thanksgiving and Christmas morning. The weeks leading up to Christmas are considered the biggest shopping season of the year. Consumer reports estimate that purchases during this time will account for one-sixth of all retail sales. 
and 2010 pre-Christmas sales totaled, and check this out, $584.3 billion, one year loan. According to the American Research Group, this year, each family in America will be planning to spend an average of $854 on gifts. Though Christmas is a cultural phenomenon, everyone participates in Christmas, and though it's big business, we should also point out something also interesting concerning Christmas. As time marches on, Christmas gradually becomes less and less and less associated with Christianity, and more specifically, the birth of Christ. In a 2010 survey commissioned by the Children's Society, they found that 10% of adults, only 10% of adults, think that religious meaning is the most important thing about Christmas. 4% of adults aged between 25 and 34 and only 20% of those over the age of 60 thought religion or religious aspects of Christmas were important at all. 51% of Americans agree with this statement. The birth of Jesus is not relevant to my Christmas at all. This past week, I ran an experiment to see if these statistics were true. I teach a Bible class at a public high school that affords me a wide range of various kinds of students from different backgrounds, different sociological families, all kinds of different things. I thought it was a good case study, and so I ran a poll. I asked 42 high school students. This time of the year, I had 12 students missing. I asked them what one thing they immediately associated when I said the word Christmas. The results were interesting. 82% thought of traditional Christmas items. The, the, the first thing that popped into their mind when I said the word Christmas were items like Santa Claus, Christmas trees, presents, lights, etc. 82% thought of these traditional Christmas things. Only 16% of my class associated Christmas with religious themes. Only 16% immediately thought of Jesus or God or Christ. Not one student associated Mary, Joseph, the stable, wise men, or shepherds when I mentioned the word Christmas. Statistics reveal a sobering reality. Though most Americans overwhelmingly support Christmas, Americans' celebration of Christmas simply has very little to do with Jesus' birth or Christmas traditions. In a debate this week with Rhode Island Governor Lincoln Chafee, who insists, by the way, that the Christmas tree set up in the state capitol be referred to only as a holiday tree, Bill O'Reilly argued that a Christmas tree wasn't religious intrusion. This was his argument. He said, and I quote, a Christmas tree is a secular symbol. It is not a religious symbol. It has nothing to do with religion. This was his justification for why we should call a Christmas tree a Christmas tree, even though it's on federal property. Now, before we as evangelicals, as Christians, get bent out of shape over this idea, we should realize something important. 
an honest examination of the history of Christmas will reveal that Christmas has never actually had much to do with religion, Christianity, or the birth of Christ. Now let me explain what I mean by examining the history of Christmas in three phases. And, and before we get into this at all, there's a lot of garbage that's out there concerning Christmas. There are a lot of people that write with an agenda. There are people that throw out statistics because they're trying to, to prove a point. Every bit of data I'm going to provide for you concerning the history of Christmas, I found reference for by at least three sources, simply because most of the stuff is just not trustworthy. So this, from my perspective, is an honest examination of the history of Christmas. Three phases we're going to look at. First, Christmas as a biblical idea. Now, though the events of Jesus' birth are obviously documented in Scripture, please keep in mind the celebration of Christmas or the celebration of Christ's birth has never been mandated. As a matter of fact, you'll read through the Bible and you'll never find once the Bible mandating or commanding followers of Jesus to celebrate the birth of Christ. Half of the gospel authors who write biographies on Jesus's life, half of them, two out of the four, Mark and John, exclude Jesus's birth entirely. No mention of it in the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Mark. And you might say, well, they don't want to repeat stories that Matthew and Luke have already brought up. And that might be true, but don't forget, they repeat stories when they conclude that the story is worth repeating. The feeding of the 5,000 is repeated by all four authors. The resurrection, repeated by all four authors. The crucifixion, repeated by all four authors. They repeat stories they find to be significant. Yet two of the four never mentioned the birth of Christ. Jesus never spoke of his birth. He never taught a message about the significance of the shepherds or the wise men. Jesus never asked the 12 disciples and the Great Commission to make sure on December 25th they took a moment, lit a Christmas tree, and celebrated his birth. He never mentioned any of it. The apostolic church also didn't see Christ's birth as a cause for celebration. We have no mention of Jesus' birth being celebrated in the book of Acts, which is the early history of the church, nor do we have it mentioned in the Pauline epistles. There is no mention of Christmas or the celebration of Jesus' birth by any of the early church fathers. For the first 300 years of the church's existence, not one single person, according to history, celebrated Jesus' birth. Christmas was a progressive idea. The year is 350 AD, and Christianity has dominated much of the known world. Constantine had established Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire, and thus the church at this point in history had incredible power and far-reaching influence. Now, one of the biggest issues facing the church, the state church, in the year 350 was the pagan celebrations that coincided with the winter solace. The, the solace, if you don't know, is the one day of the year where we have the least amount of daylight and the longest night. 
almost every culture throughout human history has had some form of celebration to mark the solace, going back from the Egyptians to the Babylonians, all the way up into the early Europeans. Every culture has had some form of celebration when the night was long and the day short and they were looking forward to winter being over. In Scandinavia, the sun, because of its proximity, the sun would disappear for a few weeks every year around the solace. And during the heart of winter, people were bummed out. Now they would send people out up onto the hilltops, the mountaintops, to look for the first light. I mean, you can imagine a long, dark winter. And when first light was finally seen on the horizon, a festival would take place in the community known as the Yuletide. To mark the celebration of the Yuletide, they would put a Yule log, a big old log, in a fire, and the people would celebrate as long as the log was burning. In addition to this, people would tie apples to branches of trees to remind themselves that spring and summer were soon on the horizon. In Germany, people believed winter came every year because the sun god became sick. The solace was a celebration because it indicated that the sun god had reached the pinnacle of his sickness and would now begin to get better. To mark this moment, evergreen trees would be brought into the homes to remind the people that green plants would soon grow again when the sun god regained his strength. In Rome, they had a celebration known as the Saturnalia. Now, this was a week-long celebration that was marked by a period of lawlessness, known for intoxication. People during the Saturnalia celebrations would go, think about this, they would go from house to house singing songs. The one exception is they were stark naked when they were doing it. This celebration was known for its sexual license. And think about it, it was also known for consuming Human-shaped biscuits, an early form of the gingerbread man. The Christian church disapproved of all of these pagan celebrations. From the ones in Scandinavia to the ones in Germany to the ones in Rome, they did not like these pagan celebrations. This was the big issue. And in an effort to adopt and absorb the pagan celebrations, Pope Julius I proclaimed December 25th, or Saturnalia's final day, the official celebration date for the birth of Christ. Now, aside from the reality that there was no evidence whatsoever that Jesus was born on December 25th. As a matter of fact, the best biblical understanding we can gather is that Jesus was probably born more in the spring. The best estimation, probably late March, because there were shepherds in the fields watching over their flocks by night. You didn't watch your flocks in the middle of the winter. So there's no evidence that December 25th is a good day for the celebration of Jesus' birth. It was arbitrarily picked out to combat paganism. Now, though the holiday would go by many names, there seems to be evidence that in 1038, people would finally settle on the name Christmas, a contraction of Christ's mass derived from the Old English. To deal with the issue of paganism, 
accompanying these winter solace celebrations, instead of standing against pagan practices, the church took a progressive approach by blending Christianity with these pagan practices. The result was tragic. For centuries, Christmas celebrations, these celebrations to mark Jesus' birth, would often carry with them clear, obvious elements of paganism. Christmas celebrations were known for the first maybe 1,500 years or so. They were known to be rowdy. They were known to be raucous. One historian described Christmas celebrations, interestingly enough, as being comparable to modern-day Mardi Gras. That's how people celebrated Christmas. Because of the blatant carnality of Christmas, much of its history would include a constant opposition by Christians of the celebration. When the Puritan Oliver Cromwell took control of England in 1645, he vowed to rid England of decadence. And what did he do? He banned Christmas. When the pilgrims, who were far more Puritan in their belief than Cromwell, when they came to America, they outlawed Christmas as well. They believed that Jesus' birth was such a sacred event that they didn't believe that common Christmas celebrations did it justice. The pilgrim's second governor, William Bradford, wrote, and I quote, that he tried hard to stamp out pagan mockery of the observance, penalizing any frivolity. In 1659, the court of Massachusetts enacted a law making observance of December 25th, other than a church service, a penal offense. People were fined for even hanging Christmas decorations. For 30 years, the celebration of Christmas was outlawed in the city of Boston. Anyone exhibiting, according to the law, the Christmas spirit was fined five shillings. Now, though some of the early settlers rejected the Puritan stance and did celebrate Christmas anyway, understand something, and this is important to your study of the history of Christmas. Following the Revolutionary War, all English customs were rejected by Americans, including Christmas. Christmas completely fell out of favor with colonial America. The first Christmas under the Constitution, Congress was in session. It wasn't recognized. And Christmas wouldn't be celebrated in America until the first half of the 1800s when Americans slowly began to soften their stance towards the holiday. So we've looked at Christmas as a biblical idea. It's not one. It is a progressive idea. We're going to now look at Christmas as an American idea, because really, that's what it is. Enter American author Washington Irving. In 1819, Irving wrote a series of stories about the celebration of Christmas in an English manor home called the Sketchbook of Gregory Cannon. The sketches featured a squire who, in good jolly cheer, would invite the peasants into his home to celebrate the holiday. Now, what was amazing by the story is that it contrasted some of the social problems American society was facing 
during the early 1800s. Two groups, the aristocrats and the peasants, were fellowshipping together, mingling together under the banner of Christmas effortlessly. By presenting Christmas as a peaceful, warm-hearted holiday that brought groups of people together, Irving subtly transitioned Christmas. He framed Christmas from being a raucous holiday into a family-centered day of peace and nostalgia. Enter English author Charles Dickens. In 1843, Dickens continued this reinvention of Christmas when he released a the classic holiday tale, A Christmas Carol. The story's message of charity, goodwill towards all mankind, it struck a very powerful chord within the United States. As Americans began to embrace Christmas as this perfect family holiday, which by the way, it had never been throughout the history of Christmas, old customs were began to be unearthed. Over the next 100 years, a country of immigrants, which America was, would begin to build their own Christmas tradition by blending various old world legends from all of the various immigrants. So as people are moving into America, the melting pot, so to speak, they're bringing their old world customs of Christmas, people are beginning to incorporate it, and America's inventing a holiday. It's amazing. Now, though you can go through almost every element of Christmas and track it back to some form of, uh, of immigrant and in some form of old world country and legend, I'm going to give you two examples of how this practically happened in America. Two examples of American immigrants contributing to an American Christmas tradition. First, German immigrants introduced the Christmas tree. The first printed reference to a Christmas tree that we have was in Germany in 1531. Legend has it that the first person that actually decorated a Christmas tree was the Protestant reformer Martin Luther. Legend has it that he was uh, walking one evening along the street and he saw the beauty of stars peeking their way through a fir tree. And just overwhelmed by the image that that presented, he cut down the fir tree, brought it home, and lit candles on the tree to share the image with his own children. Now, initially, most 19th century Americans found Christmas trees, the idea of cutting down a tree and putting it in your home, they thought that the idea was odd, bizarre, and for some even pagan. But over time it began to change. The first recorded Christmas tree being put on display in America was by the German settlers of Pennsylvania in the 1830s. In 1850, Christmas trees were being sold in America commercially for the first time. In 1853, President Franklin Pierce placed the first Christmas tree in the White House. In 1882, thinking that clearly Americans could do better with lighting candles on a drying out piece of tree, never a good idea, Thomas Edison and Edward Johnson, one of his assistants, invented Christmas lights. In 1912, the first community Christmas tree was put up in New York City. 
1923, just a few years after, President Calvin Coolidge started the National Christmas Tree Lighting Ceremony, which is held every year on the White House lawn. In 1933, the Rockefeller Center, their tree lighting celebration, the tradition, it was started. In 1966, the National Christmas Tree Association began providing Christmas tree to the first family, the president, and on and on and on things go. Today, today, what began in the early 1800s has morphed into something, well, it's a cultural phenomenon. Three, uh, 30 million people this year will purchase a real Christmas tree. Our family was one of them. At any given moment in America, this is an unbelievable statistic, at any given moment, 350 million future Christmas trees are growing in the United States. In 2005, tree farmers made a record $485 million off of their sales of Christmas trees. This year, 12 million people will purchase an artificial Christmas tree. In 2011, artificial trees imported from China were valued at $79.7 million. Imported tree ornaments from China the same year were valued, check this out, at $983 million. It's unreal. So the Christmas tree, you want to know where it came from? It came from Germany, but it has become American. The other example I want to provide is how Dutch immigrants introduced the legend of Santa Claus. Now, St. Nicholas was a Christian priest who lived in the 4th century. He was a rich man known by his generosity. St. Nicholas did not like to be seen when he gave away presents, so the children were told to go to sleep quickly or good old St. Nick wouldn't come. His gifts were thus given late at night so people wouldn't know his identity. His identity would remain a secret. Early Dutch settlers in New York brought their traditions of St. Nick to America. The name Santa Claus was derived from the Dutch pronunciation of St. Nicholas, which was Sinterklaas or St. Nick. That's where we get Santa Claus. In 1804 something interesting took place. The New York Historical Society founded with St. Nicholas as its patron saint. And in order to stay with the tradition of its patron saint, its members adopted the Dutch practice of gift giving during Christmas. In 1809, Washington Irving, his book, A History of New York, included St. Nicholas riding into town on a horse. Three years later, Irving revised his book to include Nicholas riding over the trees in a wagon. In 1821, William Gilly printed a poem titled Santa Claus. He described St. Nick as a man dressed in fur who drove a sleigh drawn by a single reindeer. In 1822, the year after, Clement Clark Moore penned a poem titled, An Account of a Visit from St. Nicholas. Santa Claus was portrayed as having a sleigh not equipped with one reindeer, but rather eight reindeer, named Blitzen, Comet, 
Cupid, Dancer, Dasher, Donner, Prancer, and Vixen. His poem was later retitled, The Night Before Christmas. In 1890, the Salvation Army started doing something interesting. They started sending out their men during the Christmas season to collect donations dressed as this common persona of Santa Claus. By the 1920s, the image of Santa Claus had been standardized to portray a bearded, overweight, jolly man dressed in a red suit with white trim. Now, in 1931, Santa Claus moved from being a legend to being a commercial tool to sell stuff. And let me explain how this happened. In 1931, Haddon Sunblum, illustrator for the Coca-Cola Company, he included, for the first time, he included Santa Claus and their Christmas advertisements. That tradition still continues today. In order to draw people into a department store, in 1939, New York copywriter Robert L. May wrote a poem about Rudolph, the ninth reindeer. He titled his poem, The Most Famous Reindeer of All. In 1949, Johnny Marks wrote the song, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. The song was later recorded by Gene Autry and became a bestseller. Next to White Christmas, another Christmas classic, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is the most popular song of all time. Over the last century and a half, Christmas has become an American institution. In 1836, Alabama, of all states, Alabama, became the first state in the Union to declare Christmas a legal holiday. There's one legend that states that Lincoln, to kind of thumb, uh, thumb, you know, thumb it in the nose of the Confederate Army, had Santa Claus pictured with Union soldiers. And then they would send these pamphlets out along the Confederate lines to act as kind of a psychological warfare that Santa Claus had sided with the North. Alabama became the first state to declare Christmas a legal holiday. Oklahoma, by the way, was the last. June 26, 1870, Christmas became an official holiday in America. Now, this is the ironic thing. The whole time this is happening, in a very subtle, progressive way, Americans believed that they were celebrating Christmas as it had always been. While all this is happening, Santa Claus and Christmas trees and mistletoes and eggnog and wreaths and all of these things taking place, Americans, though inventing the holiday, are thinking they're celebrating it in such a way that it had been done for centuries. But in actuality, Americans had reinvented Christmas into a holiday to fill not religious needs, but cultural needs of a growing nation. Needless to say, though connected to a biblical event, Christmas in America has never had much to do with the birth of Christ. Inventing, invented by a progressive Christian pope who merged the birth of Christ with pagan practices, 
Christmas never being a biblical idea and origin, by and large being nothing more than a traditional American idea based in commercialism, I am not this morning trying to be a Scrooge. And I know some of you might be thinking that. Great, Zach. A Christmas series. The building's decorated. You're wearing a nice sweater. What are you talking about? Like, what a killjoy. Like, you're being a Scrooge. Like, just stripping away all my preconceived joys, my ignorant blitz wrapped around Christmas, and I just feel depressed. I look at my Christmas tree, and I'm almost disgusted. I'm not trying to be Scrooge this morning. I'm not even trying to encourage you to strip away commercialism from Christmas. Like, I'm not trying to be a Puritan and saying we should strip away commercialism and get back to the real meaning of the season because we don't really even know what that is. I'm not even trying to get you to, like, rally the troops and let's boycott Christmas. Let's pick at the department stores. By giving you the facts and history of Christmas, the purpose of this morning is to encourage you to have a balanced approach to the Christmas season. That's my hope this morning. My hope this morning is by giving you facts and history, you might be able to develop a balanced, logical, reasonable approach to the Christmas season. And I think that there are two approaches that we should have. First, as Americans... Christmas being an American tradition, as Americans, we should enjoy Christmas. It really is amazing how out of balance and crazy our lives can become because of the hustle and bustle of, of a Christmas season that's supposed to be merry. We say Merry Christmas when in reality it's depressive Christmas. It's horrible Christmas. It's suicidal Christmas. Some of us hate Christmas because it's hectic. It's bizarre. We're running around. It's supposed to be about family, but I have to deal with department stores. Did you know every year alcohol consumption increases by 40% in the month of December? With, this is what's fascinating, 14% of people polled admitting that they drank more than they even intended. Heart-related deaths during Christmas increase 5%. Murder rates increase 4.2% in December. People are more likely to just go crazy during Christmas. One-third, and this is not funny, but one-third more incidents of domestic assault happen on Christmas Day than any other day of the year. <laughs> January 8th is the busiest day of the year for divorce lawyers. When one in five couples will inquire about divorce citing the pressure of the Christmas season. 18% of Americans agreed with this statement. I 
dread Christmas. And my first exhortation is simple. Don't allow the hectic nature of Christmas to stress you out and rob you of the merriment that the holiday was designed to provide in the first place. It said how many people allow Christmas to become a drag when it's supposed to be a blessing. I'm of the opinion that like apple pie, Coca-Cola, baseball, and jazz music, it's undeniable Christmas has woven itself into being a unique American thing. I believe as long as it's not immoral, as Americans, we can and should enjoy these American-invented Christmas traditions. In addition to spending time with family and friends, and if you're like me, attempting to lure your wife under mistletoe, you should enjoy giving gifts to one another. You should find simple pleasure in wearing hideous sweaters. The more hideous, the better. You should put up a nativity or go and see a live nativity. You should drive around and look at house decorations and lights. You should hang your own lights without trying to fall off your roof. You should decorate the Christmas tree as a family. Maybe drink some eggnog. Put on a Christmas station on your Pandora playlist. You should enjoy the tales of reindeers and elves. We watched the movie Elf last night. Absolutely hysterical. Maybe even make gingerbread men. You should even enjoy, and yes, I'm going to say this from the pulpit, Santa Claus. It's an American tradition. Speaking of Santa Claus... Let me make an important point. If you choose to incorporate St. Nick into your Christmas celebration, by all means, go for it. I'm not going to judge you or put down you or even say that's wrong. I'm going to encourage you towards it. But I do want to ask you a question. Why can't you enjoy the tale of Santa Claus and the legend of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer with your kids without lying to them by saying he's real? You tell your children the stories of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Cinderella, Pinocchio, Jack and the Beanstalk, without feeling the need to frame the characters as being real people. Does it deter from your little girl's love of Cinderella? I don't think so. Why can't we take the same approach with Santa Claus? As Christians, we run a grave risk, and please pay attention to this, a grave risk when we allow the tradition of Christmas to find equal weight with the truth of Christ's birth. I ran across an interesting article by Clint Archer that illustrates the dangers of this common approach. It's titled, should we lie to our kids about Santa Claus? Let me just read you an excerpt from this because I think he says it better than I can. I am nervous about the potential confusion which may cloud a four-year-old's faith in my honesty. Angels on high, a pregnant virgin, God in a manger, a guiding star are impossibilities. Yet, we ask our children to trust us on these claims. Then we add a fictitious, omniscient fat guy 
with a red-nosed reindeer to the mix. At a certain age, we matter-of-factly disclosed that we were just kidding about the chimney intrusion and the elven workshop. There does exist a subtle long-term danger, namely that of placing impossible fiction on the same shelf as impossible fact and forcing our children to discern arbitrarily which is which based on our flip-flopping propositions. Is it any wonder that as adults who at one time believed their Sunday school teachers eventually reject the Bible because, and I quote, it sounds a lot like a fairy tale? I want my children to grow up knowing that their dad never ever lies to them about anything. This may indeed lead to some awkward moments in life, like a premature discussion about where babies come from, but surely adding a stork to the catalog of misinformation can't be a better tactic than opting for truth in every situation. You make your decision on how you want to go about it with your family, but just food for thought. Now, as Americans, we should enjoy Christmas. The traditions, go for it, enjoy it, have fun. It's great, like the Super Bowl. But as Christians, and this is where we transition this morning, as Christians, we should prioritize Christ during Christmas. Now, though we've discussed the tragic way Christ's birth was merged with pagan customs to produce Christmas for the Christian, the season still affords an amazing opportunity. Like, we can understand why we have Christmas, but we do have Christmas. And though it has, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th, it's the time where we have an opportunity to discuss Jesus being born, the birth of Christ. In a season characterized by giving, we should take advantage of the opportunity to live out the call of Jesus by showing generosity to those in need. Over the month of November, we made a pledge here at Calvary 316 that we were going to take 10% of your tithes and offerings and we were going to designate it to a benevolence outreach for Christmas that we wanted as a church to be Jesus' hands and feet and provide just some financial pick-me-ups for some families during the Christmas season. Our tithes and offerings increased approximately 30% in the month of November. Calvary 316's offering for November was over $13,000, which gave us over $1,300 to bless families with. You guys filled out some forms, and we've cut some checks. And this Christmas, our church, practically being Jesus' hands and feet, are going to be able to provide a blessing to six families in need. That's amazing. And I encourage you to not just leave it there. Whether it's financial blessings or just being practically the Lord's mouthpiece of encouragement into someone's life during the Christmas season. Or if you know of someone that doesn't have family, to invite them over, to spend time with them. As a matter of fact, we're going to have a Christmas party uh, Friday, December 14th, here at the church at 7 o'clock. And if you know of people that just don't have anywhere else to go, bring them. We're going to do a pig roast. It's going to be a wonderful time of merriment. Christmas, as Christians, gives us an opportunity to prioritize Christ through our generosity. But Christmas also provides the perfect moment where we can teach our children lessons about the birth of Jesus and the significant impact this event can have in our lives. 
The only event, biblical event, that the church adopted in a sort of celebration was the resurrection of Jesus. Now we, what do we do? We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus one day a year, technically, on Easter Sunday. We use that as an opportunity to gather and to recognize the incredible sacrifice Jesus uh, presented on our behalf and the glorious uh, victory he had over sin, hell, the grave, and the death. But in the early church, they didn't have an Easter celebration of resurrection. They gathered, they broke a 2,000-year-old tradition of meeting to worship God on Saturday to instead mark the resurrection of Jesus by gathering every single Sunday. Sunday is resurrection day, the day Jesus rose from the dead. In our culture, we should celebrate Jesus' birth all the time. The implications of Jesus' birth are just as real in the middle of July as it is in the middle of December. But we take time culturally to kind of put things on pause and hone in our attention on that specific event. And so I encourage you to take the opportunity to look at Jesus' birth from a historical point of view and a practical point of view and a relevant point of view. To every year at Christmas, Christmas morning, we would all awake and rush down, and we would see all the presents there under the tree. We weren't allowed to touch. We had a few things, a few business items that had to be taken care of, and it was torture. It really was. Mom demanded breakfast, so we had to sit there at the table, looking at the presents under the tree, eating eggs and French toast and drinking orange juice as fast as we could. We jumped up from the table and we would dive under the tree, but we still couldn't have any of those presents because following breakfast, my mom had this ceramic nativity set that always sat on the mantle. It had been given to her, I believe, by her great-grandmother or her grandmother. And we would bring down those caricatures and we'd put them out on the floor And my dad would open up the Bible. And no, we love Jesus and all that. This was brutal, by the way. For an eight-year-old, I love Jesus, gave my heart and life to him. But this was torture because there were presents to be opened. But my parents insisted on us reading. The older kids would read through the story. And the younger kids would take these ceramic nativity set and would act out the story as things were happening. And inevitably, uh, you know, the hollowed Mary, Mac would stuff Jesus up into the hollow Mary, and when it was time for the birth, would shake out baby Jesus, and, and we had all kinds of fun with it. And since the wise men weren't actually there, we placed them over on the stairs, And it was kind of like now two years later when they were now in a house and we just said that the stable was a house. Then the wise men showed up and we had a good time with it. But we learned the Christmas story. The presents, the tree, the polar bear with the Coca-Cola logo, all of those things has nothing to do with Jesus' birth. But we use the opportunity to learn about Jesus' birth to talk about Jesus' birth. Because Jesus being born in that stable, it was significant. Because Jesus has been born 
into each of our hearts. And the implications are radical. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We read, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Next week, we're going to look at the significance of Christmas, how God became man. And so, Father, we thank you for this morning. 